Hello and welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Thank you for spending some time with me today. I know there are a lot of choices out there. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, both at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. I'd love to know what you want to know about Cubs baseball. Welcome to episode 12. If you're listening, then you're missing Cubs baseball as much as I am, especially Cubs playoff baseball. Today, I'm going to take a look at some of the comments Jed Hoyer made this season about the upcoming offseason and dive into the potential for contract extensions. Most notably, looking at the kinds of lessons the Cubs could take away from the Braves' recent activity, which includes extending yet another young player, this time rookie pitcher Spencer Strider. At the end, I look at the case for extending five Cubs players this offseason. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here. We. Go. Google Jed Hoyer and you'll see a laundry list of headlines. Some on point, some way out in left field. From the Atlantic. Cubs president Jed Hoyer welcomes pressure to sign a big free agent shortstop. From Bleacher Nation. Jed Hoyer speaks. Spending decisions. High AAV deals. Pitching development. From NBC Sports and Gordon Wittenmeyer. Why you can cross Carlos Rodon off Jed Hoyer's free agent list. And from the Chicago Sun-Times, which may have a bet on how many finger quotes could be used in one headline, Jed Hoyer, the Cubs will be aggressive, filling holes in the best way this offseason. Blah, 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 blah. It's all crap. I mean, really, I love Widmeyer, But Carlos Rodon hasn't even opted out of his contract in San Francisco yet. He's expected to, but can we wait to eliminate the Cubs at some point after he actually does so? I don't want to be too harsh here. I'm not mad at the writers. I follow all of them. I listen to their podcasts. They all give me insights into things I don't see with my own eyes or hear with my own ears, and they're an invaluable part of the Cubs community. But these headlines are based on Jed giving an hour of nothing but generic speak. I don't blame Jed either. This game is what it is. The fans want to know what's going to happen right now. There are no answers. Well, there may be answers, but we won't know some of them until later, and others will never know at all. Look at the top shortstops. Carlos Correa, Trey Turner, Xander Bogarts, Dansby Swanson. Jed may have a set pecking order with a budget item for each, reflecting how high he's willing to go. But if other teams blow past those numbers, or the Braves lock up Swanson before he actually declares for free agency, or one of them gets hurt in the playoffs, we may never know. Let's also be real here. The Cubs said many of the same things last year. Tom Ricketts sent basically the same letter for fans about how there was a budget available to fund a winner, and Jed talked about spending intelligently. The Cubs did spend. They picked up Marcus Stroman and Seiya Suzuki, the latter of whom drew a lot of interest in heavy building by five teams. The Cubs had to spend serious money to get him, but overall the roster ultimately did not have enough depth to weather early season injuries, and the season was over almost before it started. If your buddy talks about how Ricketts never spends, just ignore him. If that guy at work with the season tickets talks about how the Cubs have some of the most expensive game day experiences in baseball, listen to that. The Cubs are expensive. It's hard to go and tenants was down this year. You know what brings fans back? Talent. If your neighbor says next year is the year, take that with a normal cubby bear sized grain of salt. Jed wasn't going to say much this week. Jed shouldn't say much. What's he going to say? We're willing to go eight years, $360 million for Trey Turner, or we plan to trade for Shohei Otani, which I'm very much in favor of doing, don't get me wrong. 
or even, yeah, we'll, we're going to get a big shortstop for sure. Jed can't make those promises. When he spoke, Correa and Bogarts hadn't opted out of their contracts yet. Correa has announced that he will since that point, but Bogarts still hasn't. He's looking at a 74 and 88 team that finished strong but has holes and is likely to add another offensive hole when Wilson Contreras becomes a free agent and signs elsewhere, all but completing the teardown from the 2016 World Series championship team. Yeah, believe it or not, that really happened. Everything Jed says gets analyzed into the ground. Then it gets analyzed 100 feet deeper. Then Bruce Willis brings in his drill team from Armageddon and goes in still deeper. People will remember his words, whether he says anything of substance or not. He talked about being aggressive. That's awesome. If he talks about getting a shortstop, it down low throws shade at Nico Horner, who really emerged this season. And when there are three to four top guys available, it paints him in a corner if Bogarts doesn't opt out. Correa goes somewhere else, or the Dodgers find another $700 million in the couch cushions for Turner. Jed needs to stay focused on what the team needs. If you really pay attention, he actually did say a lot of things that matter. He has a goal of having an entirely in-house developed bullpen. That's awesome, and the Cubs are on their way with that based on the second half of the season. But he acknowledged the Cubs will still need some veteran additions. When he says that, don't hear elite closer. Instead, think David Robertson, Chris Martin, Michael Givens, Andrew Chafin, Ryan Tapera, Steve Ciszek. The Cubs have had great success finding veteran relievers and helping them work on their pitch mix, clean up some mechanics, or even add a new pitch to help them succeed. The bottom line is, the Cubs are a team on the rise. There's young talent already on display in Wrigley. Nico Horner, Christopher Morrell, Justin Steele, Keegan Thompson, Hayden Wesneski, and Brandon Hughes, just to name a few. There are veterans there to help teach the young players how to win. Guys like Ian Happ, Jan Gomes, Marcus Stroman, but the Cubs need more. The Cubs have holes, and it's Jed Hoyer's job to fill those holes. In a world of unlimited budgets, which maybe Tom Ricketts has, they'd get a number one starter and three offensive upgrades, especially given the expected departure of Contreras. Personally, I don't care what, up, what position those upgrades play, so I really don't need to see Jed lay out a position-by-position position analysis. Why does all this matter? It matters because the Cubs didn't make the playoffs. So far, the playoffs this year have been fantastic. The new wildcard format was really compelling, and the Cardinals got swept out, so that's great. The Rays-Guardians series was amazing. The Guardians win both games by a total score of 3-1 to one in what proved to be 24 innings. The pitching was phenomenal. The early season division series games are just overflowing with great baseball. Wednesday night, I was flipping between the Phillies-Braves and Padres-Dodgers games. It was just great play after great play. Austin Riley bouncing off the tarp to make a catch. Bruce Dahl Gratterall making a one-handed grab throw home to thwart a safety squeeze by the Padres. Dansby Swanson doing his best Willie Mays impression on a catch in left center. Cody Bellinger flying deep to center field to grab a shot. And Jordan Alvarez just ripping the soul out of the Mariners, dancing on it, and then running around the bases multiple times. Playoff baseball is amazing, and I miss it. The last few days, I've seen throwbacks to the Cubs beating the Cardinals in 2015 and coming from behind in the ninth to beat the Giants in the 2016 NLDS. These were moments I'll remember for the rest of my life. I commented on someone's tweet about the Game 4 comeback against the Giants that my family lost power that night when remnants of a hurricane blew through Charlotte and the winds dropped a tree limb on a power line up the street from us, which snapped the pole in front of our house. Power was out for 12 plus hours, and I watched that comeback on my cell phone in my car. These are life memories I'll cherish forever. The atmospheres are amazing. The baseball is fantastic. These teams are very talented. 
The lineups just keep coming at you, and the bullpens are just as deep as they can be. I watched the Cubs finish the season strong, including big wins over playoff teams, but the baseball being played right now is just next level. The Cubs have to improve to get there and win there. So what did you think when Jed talked about intelligent spending? Some were saying that means more Jonathan VRs and Anderson Simmonses. I don't. I think if you're paying attention, you're starting to see what Jed's plan is. He talks about stacking good decisions on top of good decisions. That probably means the Cubs aren't going to hit the free agent market for $150 million worth of free agents to fill every single hole this offseason. But given where their payroll is and where they need to be, I do think it will involve significant spending. Intelligent spending to me means something very specific, and I think Jed has the same idea. Jed wants to maximize production on a per-dollar basis. Duh. If I make an investment, I want a max return. If I buy a product, I want great value. Of course that's what the Cubs want. But in a baseball sense, what does that mean? Too many people get hung up on that and think bargain basement shopping. That's not necessarily the case. Sometimes, sure, you're grabbing a bullpen guy or bench depth from deep within the free agent pool. But other times, the very best money you can spend is a six-year deal for $155 million on John Lester. Marcus Stroman was smart money. Seiya Suzuki was smart money. David Robertson, Chris Martin, Michael Givens, Jan Gomes, and Drew Smiley were smart money. You can spend intelligently at every price level. Trading for Shohei Otani and then signing him to something like eight years, $450 million would be very smart money. Maybe genius money. So what do the Cubs have to spend? Heading into the offseason, the Cubs have $112.7 million already allocated when the luxury tax threshold should be around $233 million. Given the need to fill out the full 40-man roster, the Cubs probably have roughly 90 to $100 million to spend on new guys and maybe 70 to 80 of that on superstar-level talent. Where should the Cubs spend? I spent time last week breaking down the Cubs position by position from this past season. The Cubs are solid at right field with Seiya Suzuki. They're solid in left field with Ian Happ and shortstop with Nico Horner. And they were solid at catcher with a mix of Contreras and Jan Gomes. They were really weak at first base and second base in particular. I think the Cubs are content to go defensive at catcher, which will push the need to replace Contreras' bat to other positions. Some of you may wonder why, if Nico Horner was so good this year and I'm so high on Horner, would there be so much attention on shortstop? Really, it just comes down to supply and demand. There's a lot of demand for offensive firepower, and there's the most elite supply at shortstop. I'm fine with Nico at shortstop, but the Cubs certainly need two and probably three offensive upgrades. Where are the most impact players? Shortstop. There are others. Aaron Judge plays the outfield, but I think he'll stay in New York. If Nolan Arenado opts out of his contract in St. Louis, the Cubs may not sign a shortstop at all and instead go hard after Arenado. The second base market is really weak this year, so don't expect any major signings there. If the Cubs do go for an infield free agent signing, look for it to be a shortstop, Arenado, and or a first baseman. The first baseman would likely be on the cheaper end. Even there, the Cubs have choices. Matt Mervis mashed his way through three levels of minor league baseball this season, plus the Cubs have Alfonso, Rivas, and Patrick Wisdom, who could platoon. But assigning to cover two to three years might make sense. That would pull Josh Bell and Jose Abreu into play, although Bell's 30 and might get more years elsewhere, more, more years than the Cubs are willing to give. Abreu's very interesting. He's done nothing but hit throughout his career on the south side, and he could be a nice bridge to the Mash Mervis era, allowing Mervis to come up and play some and DH and just adjust to being in the major leagues and facing major league pitching. Free agency gets a lot of attention, for sure, 
especially at the top line. But the lesser deals and trades are just as valuable, and sometimes more valuable. The year after the Cubs signed Lester to that huge contract, and the same year the Cubs signed Jason Hayward, the Cubs picked up Ben Zobrist for four years, $48 million, and kept Dexter Fowler on a one-year contract. Those last two deals were arguably two of the most important players for the Cubs on their way to that 2016 championship. We may never know really who was available in trade over the offseason. One hot name is Shohei Otani, which I'm, I'm very much on the record as wanting the Cubs to deal for him now. Wait, no, they should have traded for him yesterday. Seriously, I know they can't trade for him now, but you get my point. He is literally the best all-around player in baseball. There's talk that the Angels might trade him ahead of free agency since all signs point to him not re-signing with the Angels. So, of course, the Cubs come into discussion. He reportedly liked the Cubs when he first came to the U.S., but the National League didn't have the designated hitter then. The Cubs have the money to spend, the NL has the DH, and the Cubs are in a big market. I sometimes hear people say, why would you give up prospects for Otani when you can just sign him for cash the next year? The answer is pretty simple. If Otani's on the market, he'll probably be traded somewhere, and if that trade happens this offseason, then I think he'll wind up signing long-term with that team. See Mookie Betts. Why go for Otani now versus just waiting for a deadline deal or for him to hit free agency if the Angels don't trade him? Pitchers only have so many pitches, and hitters only have so many swings. Maybe the Angels don't trade Shohei until the deadline, or maybe they have no interest in trading him at all. And by next offseason, you can get him with, quote, just money, as if half a billion dollars can ever be a just. But by that point, 150, 180, 200 innings of his prime have been used up on another team. He's hit another 40 home runs for someone else. If he's a target, just go get him now. For the right deal, he'll be available. There's nobody in the organization that's untouchable. The Cubs are one of just a few teams that could take on Anthony Rendon's atrocious contract, which has four years at $38 million per season remaining, back from the Angels in order to sweeten the pot. A player's prime is important. A generational talent's prime is immortal. If that's available, you have to find a way. When you have a team that's looking to hit the high end of the free agent market and or trade markets for multiple positions, you have to wonder how that team got there when they won the World Series just six years ago, were in the NLCS five years ago, and won a division as recently as two years ago. The reason? The Cubs needed, in the immortal words of Mr. Miyagi, balance. The Cubs didn't have balance through their last contention window. They were on the rebuild from 2011 to 2014 and started winning maybe a year early in 2015. But the core of that winner came up together, got expensive together, and left together. As they say, getting to the top is hard, but staying there is harder. When the Cubs won from 2015 to 2017 in particular, they had a really cheap core. Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, Javi Baez, Wilson Contreras, Kyle Schwarber, and a few others were all in pre-arbitration or arbitration years, which meant none had hit free agency and none were subject to the larger market of baseball. The Cubs stood pat, extending none of those guys after 2015 and letting them all become more and more expensive together until the point where they mostly left together. So how could it have been different? How could Jed look at this team and try to avoid the mistakes of the past? Look at reigning World Series champions, the Atlanta Braves. The Braves have largely been a well-run franchise for three-plus decades at this point, but over the last few years, the Braves have been maximizing a clear strategy develop quality major league talent, and then get that talent under contract ASAP. The standard flow for a quality young player is to come up and depending on the player's age and how long they've been in pro ball, have two to three seasons of team control before they qualify for salary arbitration. 
Arbitration doesn't bring a player to market rates and pay, but it does start to factor in performance, position, and overall standing in the game. A good young player will see steady raises during their three to four arbitration years, bringing them closer and closer to market rates by the end. Most teams, most of the time, only have a handful of players in RB years each season, and often only one or two of those are really core players. But if the team is young and has produced a lot of major league talent in a short time, and those players are leading the team, it can be a lot of uncertainty and payroll increase year over year. That's fine. I mean, I think teams have too much control over player salaries, but that's a different topic for a different day. The game today requires young, cost-controlled talent to fill the bottom of the roster, plus at least a few key roles. To get a top free agent, you have to pay that player for what he's done, not necessarily what that player will do for your team. Look at the Jason Hayward deal. He earned his money, but that contract did not age well. He did not play up to that contract, as he said himself. With that as a backdrop, what the Braves are doing is really smart. Over the last few years, they've had a number of really good young players come up, and the Braves have been methodically signing those players to long-term deals. For someone like Ronald Acuna Jr., they're getting him for less than market rates, but the deal is still arguably good for both sides. In 2019, he and the Braves came to terms on an eight-year, $100 million contract. Acuna was Rookie of the Year in 2018 in his age 20 season, so it's not like they extended a nobody. But nobody really knew for sure how good Acuna would be. There was no guarantee he would have the development path he's had. Here's where the win for both sides come, comes in. For Acuna, he gets $100 million guaranteed starting at age 21. Duh, I'd take that today. He will also get another shot at, the, at free agency in what should be his prime. The Braves have him signed through his age 28 season, plus two club options for 2027 and 2028. If he's still a superstar, they'll certainly exercise those at $17 million per season. And then he can hit the open market at age 31 and potentially score one more massive contract. For the Braves, they get certainty. In a sense, the deal front loads Acuna's contract. The deal locked in his last two team control years at $1 million per season, which is likely more than he would have gotten without the long-term deal. And then they escalated his arbitration years quickly. $5 million his first RB year, then $15 million, then $17 million for the last two. This deal is pretty team-friendly, no doubt, but the Braves now have him at a set cost through his arbitration years. He would have been under team control through 2024, plus two years where he could potentially have been a free agent, and then tacked on two team options to boot. Let's step back and look at Chris Bryant. KB sent records for early RB years after coming up and winning Rookie of the Year in 2015 and League MVP in 2016. Chris became arbitration eligible in 2018 and saw his pay balloon from just a tick over a million dollars to $10.85 million in 2018. In 2019, it jumped to $12.9 million and then $18.6 million in 2020 and $19.5 million in 2021. When he signed with Colorado this offseason as a free agent, he inked a deal giving him an average of $26 million per season. Looking back, Bryant's ARB years were effectively a four-year contract worth $61.9 million, or roughly $15.5 million per year. They could have just given that to him earlier. The Cubs saw similar results with other players. Jake Arrieta's ARB years amounted to basically a three-year deal worth $30 million, but rather than be consistent, he jumped from $3.6 million to $10.7 million to $15.6 million. Javi Baez's RB years were four years, $38.3 million, or $9.6 million per year. Pedro Strope's salary more than tripled in his three RB years. Wilson Contreras has gone from $4.5 million in his first RB year to $9.6 million in his third and final RB year this year. These escalators are no joke when you have a core of young players. 
From 2018 to 2021, the Cubs had a group of seven guys who were pretty core to those teams and were under team control. KB, Javi, Rizzo, Kyle Hendricks, Contreras, David Bodie, and Ian Happ. In 2018, that group made a combined $24.4 million, which was 11.7% of the overall payroll. By 2021, that same group made a combined $73.6 million, which was just over 47% of the team payroll. When you add that a couple of those guys hadn't necessarily been playing to their contract value due to a number of factors, including injury, it's pretty easy to see why the team stagnated. Do note, three of those seven did get extended by the Cubs before or during their RB years, and I'll get to those in a few minutes. But back to the Braves for a minute. Over the last few seasons, they've locked in a number of these deals. I mentioned Acuna. Ozzie Albies signed for seven years, $35 million. Austin Riley signed on for 10 years, $212 million. When they lost local hero Freddie Freeman to the Dodgers this offseason, the Braves traded for Atlanta-area native Matt Olson and immediately locked him up for most of the rest of his career, an eight-year $168 million contract that will pay him through his age 36 season. This year, they extended rookies Michael Harris and Spencer Strider, two leading candidates for Rookie of the Year, Harris for eight years, $72 million, and Strider for six years, $75 million. The bang for the Braves buck is that for those players, they've taken the worst of the escalators out of play. I can't do percentage of payroll for future seasons, but while the Cubs' payroll for their seven players identified above rose 201% from 2018 to 2021, the Braves' six guys will only increase 21% between 2023 and 2025, giving them a predictable base budget to build around. It's not all automatically positive, though. There are some risks to the strategy. When you lock up rookies or guys in their first couple of years, the player may not pan out or may suffer injury or a string of injuries, leaving the team overpaying for that guy. The second is with the Braves locking up Strider plus five position players. They've locked up right field, center field, second base, third base, and first base. You do limit the number of places where you can make additions to improve, and you do start to impact your ability to add any other big contracts. To that second point, the Braves were a sliver over the luxury tax threshold this year, and that's with Dansby Swanson making just $10 million in his last arbitration season. Dansby is expected to make significantly north of $20 million per year next season since he'll be a free agent. The Braves will have some guys roll off the payroll this year, but they're already committed to $188.6 million in spending against the luxury tax now. Will they pay $25 million per season for Swanson? The Braves will spend, but they don't typically chase the Yankees and Dodgers for most massive payroll. We'll see, but like everything else in life, we all have choices, and those choices can have benefits or consequences. Speaking of consequences, the Cubs have a reputation right now as a team that won't extend guys under the ownership of Tom Ricketts. I get it, and it's been bitter seeing Arietta, Bryant, Baez, Rizzo, Schwarber, and now probably Contreras leave for other destinations in free agency. But the Cubs have done it, just not often enough. Ricketts signed off on two big extensions early. After the 2012 season, the Cubs extended their two young budding superstars, Rizzo and Starlin Castro. Rizzo signed a seven-year deal worth $41 million that was a lot like the Albies deal. It paid out a couple years of team control, four arbitration years, and with the options, his first three years into free agent eligibility. The option years pushed the total value up to around $70 million. Castro signed for seven years $60 million, which paid out his option years plus three. More recently, Kyle Hendricks had jumped to a little more than $4 million in his first ARB year, and then to $7.4 million in the second. 
At that point, the Cubs decided to extend him. They signed him to a four-year deal worth $55.5 million. The contract bought out his last two arbitration seasons, plus his first two free agent eligible seasons for just under $14 million per year, plus one club option. David Bodie was another player who was extended after a quick start to his career. The Cubs signed him to a five-year, $15 million deal that paid out his RB years plus one free agent season and has two options. The Bodie deal hasn't necessarily lived up, but the value of his deal was locking in the price versus having potential escalators. And his price at $3 million per year is not so high that the Cubs can't just move on if they want to. Jed did talk this week about there being some discussions with guys about contract extensions. I think it makes a lot of sense. The Cubs are talking about being aggressive to make the team better. So looking to the Braves as an example, it might make sense to lock in a couple guys to just have set costs to build around. I think it's pretty clear that the Cubs are moving on from Contreras, even as there are some some conflicting reports. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about what kind of deal might make sense for him, although I expect him to sign for something less in AAV than the $19 million qualifying offer he'll get from the Cubs. Look for something like two years, $36 million, or three years, $45 million with some kind of option package on the back end, or maybe an option that vests based on playing time. I'm going to think like the Braves here now and make the case for five possible Cubs extensions. They won't all get done, obviously, and they probably all shouldn't get done together. But I'm going to look at the two most obvious extension candidates, Ian Happ and Nico Horner, and then look at Justin Steele, Fran Mil Reyes, and Christopher Morrell. The last two may seem weird, but hear me out. I'll start with Happ. He became a clubhouse leader, reportedly being a big help to Seiya Suzuki when he first came over. And now he's put up a really consistent season and a half after being very mercurial for most of his career up to that point. He has one RB year left, and then he's a free agent. Hap's projected to make around $10.6 million in 2023 through arbitration. I think the Cubs could probably pay that out plus three seasons with some kind of player club options tacked on. He's 28, so he's right in his prime. Baseball savant has Hap as a really good hitting comp to Brandon Crawford, who was extended by the Giants around the same age Hap is now. In that deal, the Giants paid out his last two RB years at a total of $14 million and then locked him in for four years, $60 million. Last year, he signed a two-year, $32 million contract. I think a $15 to $18 million market value for a switch-hitting outfielder with some pop who has a good-to-great glove is a pretty good estimate. If you price Happ at $10.6 million for 2023 and three years at, say, $16 million, I think getting him at a three-year, $50 million contract or a four-year, $60 million price tag would be pretty solid for both sides. And I think he'd be interested in staying. The Cubs could front load that or back load that to some extent, but there's flexibility. And maybe more importantly, he's not so expensive that they couldn't that he couldn't be traded if there was a need. There's not a lot of bargain opportunity for the Cubs on Hap because he's so close to free agency, but I think he wants to stay here and I think there's a fair deal to be had with him. So what about Horner? He's entering his first of three ARB seasons now and is in line to be a free agent in 2026. He's 25 and has shown an elite contact tool, posting the second lowest strikeout percentage this year. He's 25 and has shown an elite contact tool, posting the second lowest strikeout rate this year, and he's proven to be an elite glove at both middle infield positions. He's clearly working on developing power and has added pop without sacrificing contact. He's a very good player now, seems to be a guy teammates gravitate to, and has a chance to be a top shelf player for a long time. Looking back to the last great Cubs team, Nico is right in line with those guys who could really get significant arbitration bumps year over year. This year, he's expected to get around $2.2 million, 
which would be an absolute steal. But he's also a guy who could be making 12 to $15 million by year three. I'm not sure what a deal for him looks like exactly, but you certainly want to buy out the three RB years plus two to four on the other side with some potential options. When you look for comp deals, I think a Horner deal would land somewhere between the Albies deal, which frankly is too team friendly, and the Riley deal. Averaging out some cheaper RB years with what could be expensive free aging years, I think a five-year deal worth 12 to $16 million with some options could be a good start to negotiations. If he's the player you think he is, He's maybe $2 million, $6 million, $10 million during his three ARB years. And then maybe you pay him $20 million total for those years. And then maybe he's $18 to $20 million player on the open market. Tack on some inflation, maybe give him $21 million per year for two more seasons. That gets you to about five years, 60 to $65 million with an option year a little higher than that. It still gives him another shot at free agency at 30 31 and it locks in his price. The Cubs could level the payout so they make fifteen to seventeen million dollars per year, which would be cheap on the back end, or they could step it up as arbitration would to create flexibility now. Those two cases for extension are really easy to justify, even if the negotiation process and figuring out a price is not easy at all. So let's look a little bit deeper at some less obvious cases. Justin Steele has five years of team control left, two pre arb years and three arbitration years, and would be a free agent in twenty twenty eight. He really stepped up this year, but you can't really compare him to Spencer Strider because Steele is older, 27 to Strider's 23. The Cubs could just walk through those team control and arbitration years with Steele and keep the price as low as possible on a year-over-year basis. But he is definitely a guy who could escalate fast in arbitration as a lefty starter if he keeps pitching at the level he pitched in the second half. The market value for a lefty posting those kinds of numbers is currently significantly north of $20 million per year. Steele may be open to a longer deal because he'll be 32 when his RB years are up. He may never get that chance to hit the open market in his prime. When you look at his performance and money, the Cubs wouldn't need to pay him even as much as $1 million until 2025, at which point I would expect his price to go up fast. If the Cubs pay the two pre-RB years at $1 to $2 million per year, that might be a good start. A very high-end comparison for Steele could be Garrett Cole who was younger in his RB years than Steele is, but he went $3.75 million to $6.75 million to $13.5 million from 2017 to 2019 before hitting free agency. Add baseball's inflation, and those numbers might not be far off what Steele could be projected to get, and he could potentially bump higher than that. So if we look at $3 million total for pre-RB years and then something like 4 7 14 for his RB years, that's $25 million for the team control portion. And if the Cubs tack on a couple, it might take 18 to 20 18 to $20 million per season. That could mean a seven-year, $80 to $85 million deal for Steele. That's a massive guarantee and lock-in for Steele. And if he keeps throwing like he did, that's a good price on a quality lefty starter through his prime seasons. And again, it locks in price certainty. So what about Franmil? I'm not 100% convinced the Cubs will even keep him through the Rule 5 draft roster crunch. But if they plan to, Reyes might be a guy interested in locking in some guaranteed money, and the Cubs might be willing to keep the AAV in check by trading that for years. Fran Mill is in his ARB2 year and projected to get $6 million in arbitration, and he'll have one more ARB year before being eligible for free agency. I don't really think he's worth $6 million a year based on his performance last year. I could see the Cubs looking at something like three years for 12 to $15 million with an option year. It would keep Fran Mills AAV around 4 to $5 million, 
but it would get him a little extra guaranteed money, but not so much money that the Cubs couldn't walk away if he has another down year next year. If he can recover his bat and get back to what he did in San Diego and Cleveland prior to last season, he'd be a steal at that price. Morell is another really interesting one. The Cubs don't have to do anything. He still has five years of team control left, but it might make sense to look at something between the in between the Bodie extension and the Albies extension. He's not as productive at this point as Albies was or as young, but he's younger and projects better than Bodie did at the point where Bodie got the extension. A six-year deal locking in two pre-arb years at $1 million and then three arb years at maybe $5 million per season and maybe another year $12 million plus a couple options could be a good start. The Cubs could balance that out in any number of ways, but that would be six years, $30 million, or maybe something a touch longer, seven years, $42 million. If Morrell becomes a very good major leaguer, it's a bargain, but it also locks him in guaranteed earnings and security. Plus, it would leave him a chance to hit free agency at 29 and 30, and the money wouldn't be so great that the Cubs couldn't move him in the future or walk away if his production warrants. There's no urgent need for the Cubs to extend Morrell now, but if he has a strong second season, the price tag to extend him only goes up. It's going to be a very, very interesting offseason, and I think it's going to set the basis for the Cubs' next competitive window. If Jed can play it right and stack good decisions on top of good decisions, some of those good decisions will likely be contract extensions. While it comes with some risks, I do think picking up a few guys and leveling out their arbitration years and sweetening the pot with a couple extra control years is a great strategy, and when the Cubs should be putting to good use, though maybe not to the fullest extent like the Braves are. We'll see where this goes. I'm sure we'll be watching intently for news, particularly with Happ and Horner. I want to thank you for spending time with me today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Please take 10 seconds and drop a rating and a review on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you've already done that, thank you so much. Maybe share an episode with a friend. Just a few seconds will help me get better and help others find the show. As always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CubsPSPlus. This is Mike Waller, host of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. Every day with Cubs baseball or talking about Cubs baseball is a great day. Go Cubs!